Welcome to the Commerce Cast, which is an NCR Greenhouse podcast production. Uh, and that's where we bring in industry experts to discuss the latest trends and insights in the world of retail, hospitality, and self-directed banking. NCR Greenhouse is a part of NCR, which, as you will know, is one of the leading technology and platform providers for these industries. My name is Ismail Amla. I'm the Executive Vice President responsible for consulting, advisory, and technology services for NCR. And I'm delighted to introduce our guest joining us today on the podcast. Benedict Evans is a prolific writer who focuses on technology, specifically around what's going on, what it means, and what will happen next. Benedict has spent over 20 years analyzing mobile, media, and technology and worked in equity research, strategy, consulting, venture capital, and has a weekly new newsletter with over 175,000 subscribers, of which I am one and have been for a while. Benedict also gives presentations pulling some of these ideas together. Benedict, welcome. Uh, where, where do we find you today? I heard you moved from London to New York. Yeah, I'm, I'm in New York at the moment. Uh, and and um, I, I also made that transition. What, one thing that describes the difference for you for the two cities, is there anything that stands out that you think about uh, the two cities? I don't know. Um, the, the, I suppose the interesting contrast would be with Silicon Valley, which I've always thought of as being a little bit like being in a college town in that everybody um, surrounding you is working on the same stuff and there's this huge sense of possibility and enthusiasm and support. But you also don't kind of have any external perspective. Whereas if you're in London or New York, you might actually meet somebody who doesn't know what an LLM is, at least doesn't know yet, although they will shortly have it rammed down their throat. That's a great way of putting it. Uh, great to have you on the show. Um, in this episode, we hopefully exploring a number of topics. So transformation of the retail industry and the role of technology in shaping the future, one of the things I wanted to touch on. Secondly, around the challenges and opportunities around this whole idea of disintermediation, where businesses want to use other parties but want to protect their brand. And then a little time, if we can, on metaverse and NFTs, which are topical or not topical, depending on which week you're in. Uh, just wanted to touch on that. And for those of you who are listening and watching, get ready for some valuable insights and predictions, I'd say, from one of the tech industry's leading experts. So if I can dive right into it, um, technology uh, is enhancing, if we think about retail, Benedict, is enhancing the retail industry in countless ways. Uh, is it augmented reality, enhanced customer services, greater precision and control over marketing data and their inventory management and so on? And of course, during the pandemic, there was this huge change of customer behavior. And I was reading somewhere for the UK, March 20, there's like 40% of people used online shopping. A year later, there was 75%. So a lot of things have happened. Um, how do you think about this as you start thinking about, uh, let's start with e-commerce. How do you think about this? Um, the role of e-commerce evolving in retail and what impact on traditional brick and mortar? 
So I think we should sort of separate what happened in the last two or three years from the kind of the 20-year, 25-year trend. Um, there was clearly there was a sort of a moment in the summer of 2020 when, you know, everything has sort of jumped forward 50% and people kind of thought, well, that's it. We, we pulled five years of growth forward and we're just going to, we're either going to grow faster or we're going to continue from this new base point. Um, most of the charts now see a sort of reverting back to the trend line. So you kind of had a tick upwards and now you're kind of heading back to the path that you were kind of on before, maybe, you know, a little bit ahead, six months ahead, but not kind of five years ahead, which was kind of the moment of enthusiasm that we had in um, when we were all locked up at home. On the other hand, we also had an awful lot of habits broken and an awful lot of kind of presumptions broken. I think you can particularly see this in something like remote work or in business travel. It does seem like something like 20 to 25% of business travel has just gone away because after two or three years of Zooms, people thought, okay, it's now an option. I, you know, I worked at a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, and I think I did like maybe one video call a year. It was kind of a weird thing to do. You only did it if there was some special case. And now a video call is completely normal. And doing a 20-minute video call instead of a one-hour meeting in person is also completely normal. Something similar with grocery delivery, for example. You know, that usage of grocery delivery in the US and the UK sort of doubled overnight. Um, in the UK, it went from 5% to 10%, and it kind of held there. Um, you see the same kind of thing in sort of restaurant delivery, which is still well above the levels that it was before the pandemic. So I think there's a sort of a general sense that kind of stuff got pulled forward, maybe not as much as we'd thought. There's a, a, a um, an enduring sense of the habit that this is how you do it because you do it and you haven't tried that other thing. Those habits have definitely been broken. But sort of the underlying point is, you know, 5 billion people have got a smartphone now. And yes, people their stuff sped up a bit and now stuff has slowed down a bit. And there's obviously a lot of questions around the macro environment and the geopolitical environment. But when the dot-com bubble burst in 2000, there were, you know, only a couple of hundred million people online. And now mm. there's five billion people with a smartphone. And so the sort of fundamental remaking of retail, e-commerce, advertising, marketing, how you would even build a brand and what a brand would mean... All of that just carries on happening, just as it was happening in 2019. Uh, it, um, it, is there anything which you think, any technologies which you think is going to disrupt it disproportionately? It meaning commerce, you know, retail, hospitality, anything that you think of is going to disrupt it in that way? So I think two, maybe two answers to this. The first of them is, um, there's a great quote from um, Jorge Lehman, a founding partner of 3G Capital, which among other things owns Kraft Heinz, where he said something like, I'm a terrified dinosaur. I thought I was doing a classic PE deal. I thought it was all about efficiency and scale and optimization. And suddenly I'm being disrupted in every way. And what he's talking about is you know, every way that you would take CPG to market and how you would build a CPG brand all of the cards have kind of been thrown up in the air and no one really knows where they're going to land and in what ways. You know, it used to be a very straightforward model that, you know, you made it manufactured at massive scale, you marketed at massive scale, you sent thousands of trucks of your product to Walmart, um, Walmart sold at massive scale, you kind of knew how the business worked. And now every kind of part of that value chain gets broken apart, whether it's how advertising works, how marketing works, even kind of simple things like, well, what do we mean by advertising versus marketing? I mean, Amazon did close to $40 billion of ad revenue last year. Is, but is that advertising or is that marketing? Or is that sort of slotting fee? Or is that market sales? Is, or is that a trade dollar? Or like, what is that? And the answer is, well, yes, it's all of those things. And the def- trying to argue about the definition doesn't matter anymore. Should you be spending your 
you know, how is it that you, what, do, what money do you spend to reach your customer? Do you spend it on rent? Do you spend it on advertising, on shipping, on your credit card interchange fees, on returns, on pricing? Those all used to be separate budgets and no one thought of most of those as being optional or interchangeable. Now they're all kind of interchangeable. And so that kind of whole sense of like, how do you build a brand? How do you build a retailer? How do you market? How do you advertise? What are all the kind of the categories here and the value chains in each one of those? All of those get broken apart. And that's been going on for sort of five years, 10 years. But I think the pandemic kind of crystallized our our realization of that. I think the other answer is that, you know, right now, everybody in Silicon Valley is running around with their hair on fire, shouting chat GPT, chat GP3, generative, generative machine learning, large language models, because we've had this sort of iPhone moment, or it feels like the problem may be an iPhone moment in a combination of sort of the advance of a sort of step change in what machine learning can do, and also kind of a, a kind of crystallization of, of, of what you can do with it and how it could be useful, um, that has resulted in Microsoft and Google sort of jumping into something called the search wars, which nobody has talked about for kind of 15 years. And you know, someone told me the other day that half of the startups in Y Combinator, which is the premier incubator for new startups, half of them are doing something with generative machine learning. And I don't think anyone quite knows, okay, well, what are the implications of this? Like, how does this generalize? What does this mean? But it's interesting to kind of compare it with the first wave of machine learning that was sort of 2013, 14, 15, where you got these kind of cool demos of image recognition. And you'd say, well, look, now this computer can recognize a cat. And people would say, okay, that sounds cool, but what's that for? And it wasn't immediately obvious that what this did was transform fraud recognition or, you know, route optimization, or the efficiency of your HVAC plant, or all sorts of other things that didn't look like the demo. Um, And so machine learning sort of very rapidly generalized throughout the tech industry and the broader industry, and I'm sure NCR and all of NCR's customers have now got dozens of machine learning projects um, or in production, and it's almost become boring. I was like, oh yeah, we get it now. And there's an old joke that AI is anything that doesn't work yet. So once it works, it's boring, it's not AI. And it feels like, what do you call it, generative ML or large language models, um, are like a second wave of that. And so that's kind of the other thing that's changing. One of them is this kind of trend of everything breaking apart, all the value chains breaking apart. The other is this sort of, oh my God moment in tech in the last couple of months around generative networks. Yeah, and, and I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was actually going to mention the oh my God moment. But I think maybe you can help uh, some of our listeners connect the dots between chat GPT and retail. And when you talk about fraud recognition, for example, that is, I think, a superb example. Just talk a little bit more for, for those people who are thinking, okay, but what does this mean for me in my industry? Fraud might be one great example, but how do you help sure. connect those dots to say, this is actually what it means for your industry? It really is an oh my God moment. Okay. So you have this moment in 2013 where something called neural networks or deep neural networks or machine learning um, starts producing these great results for this thing called ImageNet, which was a sort of an academic competition to produce image recognition software. And image recognition was one of those things that had always kind of worked, but never really worked, like translation, speech recognition, um, indeed automated fraud detection. It kind kind of works, but it never really works. And machine learning turns out to work, but to basically solve this. Hmm. And but then what happens is you realize this generalizes beyond image recognition. And what you're actually talking about is pattern recognition. 
And so then the question is, what are things that could be made into pattern recognition or that we didn't realize were pattern recognition or that could become pattern recognition? And kind of a useful way I always used it to, to kind of explain this was um, that what this does is anything that you could get an intern to do. So you could ask an intern to look at, to listen to every, the call coming into the call center and say, does the customer sound suspicious? Is the call service agent being rude? But you couldn't get it. You don't need to be an expert for that. You just need like a 10 year old to do that. Or, you know, a friend of mine used to say machine learning will do anything you could train a dog to do. You could probably train a dog to tell you if the customer service agent is being rude. Right. Um, but what you don't have is the ability to scale that across a million calls a day or a billion calls a day or whatever the number is. And so machine learning lets you do anything an intern could do, but it gives you a million interns. It lets you automate that. I mean, this is automation. It's just what spreadsheets and computers did in the 50s and 60s. It's anything a first-year CPA could do, except now you've got a million of them. So now you can automate the insurance quotes, or you can automate the taxation system. Machine learning let you automate anything that like a 15-year-old could do. And so that was kind of the moment is you kind of had to go from, okay, you can recognize images, but I'm a supermarket. I don't have images. So what's this for? To realize now everybody listening to this will know, can think of 20 things that they're doing with machine learning because it was actually pattern recognition. And then you think, well, what a pattern, what kind of patterns might I be able to use this for? I think the same thing now applies with generative networks, which are in a very, very crude way running that in reverse. You've got the pattern, so now you can make more of the pattern. Okay, more of what patterns? So I can make more dogs, I can make more pictures of cats. Okay. I mean, I, I just, um, you know, writing about the, um, the announcements by Google and, and, um, and Microsoft yesterday, I made a picture, I typed into mid-journey, make me a picture of Sundar Pinchai as a boxer squaring up for a fight. There it is, there's a picture. Okay, that's kind of fun. Okay, that's kind of cool. What's that for? The question is, just as we went from you can recognize a cat to you can detect flaws in castings in a large industrial company, how do we generalize this from, okay, I can make a cool picture of Sundar Pichai dressed as a boxer to, well, where is it that I can make stuff with this? And, and so it's so sort of, you know, the other big example, of course, is people are talking about generative search. But, you know, something I was playing with the other day is I took a product shot. Um, I took a product description from a fast fashion retailer and plugged that into a couple of image generation systems. And I get a bunch of product shots and then you, you put them next to each other and think, okay, which of these comes from Sheehan or Zara, and which of these has just come out of stable diffusion? Actually, you can't tell. Wow. And that's just like me pressing by go once. So think, I mean, what happens when you optimize that? What does that mean? You know, at what point could I take a product shot and generate the patting cotton and send it directly to the factory? Well, that's now not science fiction, that's just engineering. What would it mean if you could generate a new piece of software? So what if I say, I want a Salesforce module that will do this, and it mm. makes it for you. And so there's a lot of those sort of like, okay, what is it useful? What, what would it, where would it be useful to be able to make stuff based on existing patterns? And we are sort of at that moment we were with machine learning in 2014 of kind of looking at cat pictures and going, so what? Like that sounds cool, but what? And the end, of course, now you know what. We're, that's kind of the point we are with this stuff. Fascinating, fascinating. The other area where. You know, we've seen a lot of discussion uh, and I think we've probably maybe moved into the maturity stage of the life cycle is around the use of data and analytics. Um, mm. what, what are you seeing, Benedict, around, you know, what are, what are best case examples of 
using data and analytics to drive decision making or optimizing customer experiences are, are, are other things of value? Well, there's a, there's a sort of a classic observation in economics called Jevons paradox, which is that if you make something more efficient and cheaper, um, you don't use less of it, you use more of it. So, you know, when you go from, I mean, there's a, you know, if you think about what it would have taken to analyze the financials of your business back in 1960, you would have um, had a bunch of people sitting at electromechanic adding machines. If you want to ask a question about your insurance business, it's like 500 people in two weeks, and they come back with the answer. And what they've just done is today, a half meg spreadsheet and 10 seconds to hit refresh. And because you can do that, you do more analysis. You don't actually end up with less analysts. You, in fact, you end up with way more analysts because it's actually possible to get them to do kind of useful and productive stuff. And the same kind of point, I think, is applied with every wave of, um, of data and computing, that when you make it cheaper and easier to ask questions, um, you ask more questions. You don't ask the same questions and spend less on it. You ask way more questions. And, you know, if one thinks about what happened, you know, another, kind of another way that I, I kind of think is useful to look at machine learning is to think about SQL. So to think about relational databases. So back in the you know, 1960s, 1970s, databases are these amazing things. But if you want to ask a question that hasn't been asked before, then that's sort of a month of engineering work. Um, you know, you ring people up at Honeywell or indeed NCR or IBM, and you say, can we ask this question? And they go, oh, interesting. Um, we'll give you a quote. <laughs> and what SQL does, you know, very crudely, is let you ask arbitrary questions very easily. And, you know, if you think about, well, what did that mean? Imagine going to a big supermarket in 1978 or 1981 and saying, so there's this thing called standard query language, and it lets you ask arbitrary questions. And then there were people would say, be a long pause, and people would say, like what? Like what questions? And, of course, the answer is it gets you to just-in-time supply chains. And it gets you to having an order of magnitude less inventory. And it means that you can restock your store once a day instead of once a week. Um, and it kind of completely changes the structure of your business. Um, I mean, going back kind of a step, something I was looking at recently is what UPCs and barcodes did to the grocery industry. Mm. And the short answer is that the typical supermarket goes from stocking about 5,000 SKUs in the 60s to about 50,000 SKUs in the 2000s. And that's because of barcodes. It's because you can actually manage the stock without having to send people around with a pen and paper and you can manage the reordering. And then EDI lets you automatically place the order with Procter & Gamble so the truck arrives in the supermarket tomorrow with the right stuff. And so the, 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 kind, of the kind of the macro point here is when you get these new tools, whatever they are, you start by making them fit the existing way of doing your business. And here's a little bit of a square pair ground hole. But basically, you start by saying, well, we could make this existing thing that we already do work better. But then what happens is you change your business around what this new thing makes possible. And so you have half the inventory and double the stock. Or you have a just-in-time supply chain. Or you know, whatever it is that you're doing, you actually change your business around mainframes. And then you change your business around SQL. You change your business around Oracle. You change your business around the web. And I think this is kind of another of these waves where the new tool actually changes how you run your business. And, and so great examples of how you can use data analytics, these tools to change your business. But you can also use them, of course, of, in terms of how you interact with your consumer. And, and where do you th I'm, I'm wondering where you think we are on that journey of being okay with the machine and the organization having data about me so it can manipulate how it interacts with me. 
where are we on that journey of have, be, having trust with that process? So I think maybe two answers to this. One of them is that part of the sort of fundamental unbundling that I was talking about earlier means that there are an awful lot of companies that are consumer brands, but B2B businesses that now want to be B2C businesses. So there are a lot of companies that, I mean, the obvious example would be Disney, which is a huge consumer brand, but historically didn't really sell to consumers. You know, they sell TV shows to TV networks. And they sell movies to movie, movies may be kind of a slightly different case, but um, you know, Procter and Gamble is a B two B company. They don't sell to consumers. They sell they don't sell soap to consumers. They sell trucks full of soap to retailers, and retailers sell it to consumers. And so there is now a whole kind of conversation for sort of every big consumer brand of should we be having a direct relationship with the customer? What would that mean? And that's a completely different kind of company. You know, it's something that you've historically never done. You know, yes, you know, you market to consumers, but, you know, if you walked into, I don't know, if you walked into L'Oreal's head office in, in New York 10 years ago and said, can I buy some makeup? You get kind of strange looks. You know, we're, <laughs> we don't sell makeup. We sell trucks full of makeup. Now they do. Um, and so that's sort of one question of should you even be having those kind of relationships? What should that look like? And then you got to get lots of kind of interesting conversations around stuff like merchant media. So like if you advertise on a retailer who's, who gets the data from that? What does that mean? How does that work? I think there's a more fundamental conversation that goes much beyond commerce and indeed kind of beyond advertising, which is we're kind of trying to work out what privacy means on the internet. Hmm. And it's very easy to say things like, well, big companies shouldn't have our data until you think, okay, well, the bank knows how much money I've got. So like, what exactly do you mean by that? And we have, I think, very kind of conflicted ideas of what this should look like because you know, to kind of put it very crudely, you know, you, you open Instagram and you say, wow, that ad's really creepy. How do they know that? And of course, the answer is they didn't. It's just chance. And you also open it and you say, damn it, you know, you've got five years worth of history. You should know I'm a man, not a woman. So show me ads. Don't show me ads for women's clothes or, or don't show me ads for men's clothes. So you kind of want ads that are relevant, but you also don't want ads that track you. Mm-hmm. So we kind of, we don't have like, I think, a um, we don't kind of have like a clear and kind of completely resolved understanding of what we mean when we say privacy and 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 how you would then there's like a kind of a huge fuzzy gray area in the middle of well why exactly is that okay and or and why exactly is that wrong and how would you tell the difference um I mean, the kind of example I often give is like, at the moment, we've got this kind of very rigid distinction between quote unquote first party data and third party data, and that means that the New York Times can track me as a subscriber for a month and see me reading about cars all month and then show me a car ad next to their reporting on the earthquake in um, Turkey. And then I open the New Yorker story about the earthquake in Turkey and they can't show me a car ad because that's third party. I think, well, why exactly is that wrong? And I don't think you can really kind of pin down what it is that we think about this stuff and how it is that we think it works. Yeah, yeah. Great, great segue actually to um, building. You know, everybody is talking about wanting to own the customer relationship, and you know, you talk about B two B organizations want to become B two C. When we talk about disintermediation, right? So I think this is one disruption uh, that's created great opportunities. So value chains being broken up. So you as the supplier no longer control all of the interactions with your customer. Delivery 
a great example. And it opens mm. great opportunities for people who can use delivery to do things they couldn't do, maybe don't want to do, they don't want to do delivery. But on the other hand, mm. now part of this, that whole ch- uh, cycle and communication is owned by somebody else. How, how do you look at that yeah. in terms of disintermediation and uh, you know the, the, the vendor effectively wanting to protect their brand, but then no, they're not in control? So I think there's a sort of, um, it's almost kind of what, what I said earlier about like, all the cards are thrown up in the air and no one quite knows how they resolve. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the fascinating case study here is Shopify. Um, yeah. So Shopify probably did $200 billion of GMV last year. Um, they have their report. I think they report next week. Um, they did $175 billion in 2022, 2021. So they're sort of 40%, 45% of the size, maybe 50% of the size of Amazon Marketplace. They're not a consumer-facing brand. Um, they allow anyone from a very big company like Facebook um, or indeed Heinz to have like startup quality um, user experience, startup quality software. They also unlock to you, know, you or me if we you know, had a side project and wanted to sell something. Um, and they have a sort of a network effect around shop pay. Um, they're, starting, they're, they're starting to invest in distribution. To what extent are you... If you're, buying, if you're selling on Amazon, then they're kind of an Amazon customer, except that if there's a problem with the product, Amazon says it's on you. And that's a kind of an ambiguous situation. On Shopify, Shopify at the moment is just a technology provider and it's your customer, except that Shopify would kind of like to build a network. And But if they were to build a network, that would mean that they would be able to drive you customers with things like an advertising network or, or recommendations or so on. Um, sort of similar thing on Instagram. You know, do I own my Instagram users? Well, no. Um, does Instagram pay me for them? No. On the other hand, does Instagram make a cut of anything that I do? Also, no. And I think, you know, this almost sort of comes back to, um, you know, thinking about kind of the history of retail for like 150 years. So, you know, you go from department stores um, to, you know, from small retailers to department stores. You go from individual grocers to chain stores to supermarkets. Um, what is the right aggregation model what is the kind of the right points within that aggregation model where customer ownership should happen or shouldn't happen? Um, but there's also kind of a, um, a challenge to the whole kind of question, which is, I mean, I mean, years ago, I had a meeting, like a long time ago, I had a meeting with a big UK supermarket and they kept talking about our customer and how our customer trusts us. And after they said this like half a dozen times, they said, look, I walk home from the tube to my house. I walk past a supermarket. It's orange. Is that Tesco or Sainsbury? I don't know. Mm. And I trust Tesco and Sainsbury's with my life, the life of my children. Like we trust them not to kill us. We trust them that the milk is milk and there's no melamine in it. And like, and they take that really seriously. It's important. But, but I wouldn't trust them to do like a video on demand service. Or so there's there's a sense of like, well, what kind of ownership and relationship do you have permission to have? Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I'm wondering, you know, in terms of protecting their brand. Um, what sort of different activity they're going to have to do? Because you know, you, you have a great example, Tesco and Sainsbury's. Um, you, you you do, of course. Uh, if you live in the UK, you know them. You trust everything that they do, but they may not be the one who come and deliver to your door. Um, and if they don't come on time hmm. and it impacts your lifestyle, who do you blame? <laughs> and do Tesco and Sainsbury's care? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating one. I mean, we have this sort of at the moment with um, 
with Google and Microsoft thinking about deploying um, generative machine learning into search. Mm -hmm. And um, if you do traditional search, you get 10 blue links. You understand Google isn't sure. I say it's probably one of these. We think it's one of these, but you're going to have to choose. And you kind of understand there's a degree of like, there's a limitation to how good this thing can be. When you use ChatGPT, it gives you one answer. And then one answer, for the sake of argument, has the same probability as being correct as the first link in Google, except that it's kind of not presented as though we don't quite know what the answer is here. And so there's this sort of sense of like, how do you present this? How do you frame it? How do you talk to people about it? At least as much as, you know, where's the contractual relationship? I mean, if you order, you know, if you order food delivery and it's late, do you blame the delivery company or the restaurant? That's kind of an interesting question. It kind of depends. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've talked a lot, Benedict, uh, in, in your weekly blogs and your papers around Web3 and Metaverse. Uh, and mm. I think in, in the world of commerce, uh, there is a little bit of, you know, differing views of what is it, um, how important is it. Maybe you can just describe for us uh, what is the metaverse and how does it differ from the internet as we know it? So, I mean, the way you frame the question itself is kind of interesting because, and it's kind of interesting that you mentioned Web3 in the same context, because most people actually working on Web3 don't think it's got anything to do with metaverse. Um, but what's happened is these terms have sort of escaped out into the wild and because there's no actual product behind them that anyone can use they sort of take on a lives of their own mm. I think the metaverse I think in particular is kind of a, is a problem because I don't think you can actually know what somebody means when they say metaverse because there's sort of five or ten different things that they might mean mm. um, and I think one could kind of propose a narrow definition and a broad definition I think a narrow definition would be that some combination of VR headsets and or AR glasses, meaning I wear a pair of glasses that look like normal glasses, I can, that can place things into the world. I can yeah. look at you in a meeting and it will show me your Salesforce profile or your Tinder profile, depending on the time of day and the kind of meeting we're having. Right. And some combination of that is the next smartphone. It's the next universal platform. Half a billion, a billion couple of billion people will have this on like a five to 10 year view. And we are sort of where smartphones were in the early 2000s. That's the thesis, that this is going to become the next thing that billions of people have. If you had that, well, then that would kind of change how you built software and how you built websites and how you built apps and what you, you know, your experience of the internet. And it's kind of important to remember that the web is just one thing you do over the internet. So you may be just as we don't, we just as we do apps rather than the web on smartphones, we might do something else rather than apps on on in AR or in VR. Um, the challenge is, of course, like today, there's like low single digit millions of people using VR. Nobody's using AR because there is no AR device that you can buy outside mm -hmm. of, you know, the stuff, there's prototypes in the labs at Apple and Google and Facebook, but there's no product you can buy. And so talking about this today is, it's, you know, I, in one sense, it's like talking about the mobile internet in like the mid-2000s. The mid like, it seems like it's working. You can go to conferences, you can buy phones. But we all kind of know, looking back, the use of the mobile internet in like 2005, it was like, you know, what's the user base for your product? Well, it's half people who work for us, half people who work for our competitors, plus there's a bunch of analysts and consultants. Any real people? No. And so that's sort of what VR is today. And so trying to predict what it's going to look like, you know, it's like trying to predict what mobile was going to look like in the mid-2000s. You know, no one had Apple on their list. No one even had Google on their list. You certainly didn't have like apps and Instagram and TikTok on your list. 
And, and so you have to be you know, very kind of hesitant to make any very specific prediction about how this would work at the point that it took off. Um, you also have to be hesitant about predicting that it will take off because you know, smartphones became this universal product. Um, it is possible that VR ends up being a sort of subset of games consoles. And I think it's kind of, this is kind of the bear case is if, you know, if I'd shown you a PlayStation 5 in 1990, you would have said, oh my God, this is amazing. This is the future. Everybody's going to have this. And it is amazing and it is a future, except it turns out the install base of games consoles is like 200 million units, which is yeah. not nothing, but it's not 5 billion. It's not a universal experience. Most people see a games console game and say that's very pretty and walk past and aren't interested. And so that's sort of the bear case for VR and AR is it actually doesn't become a universal thing at all. Um, so that's a sort of a kind of a, a generalized way of thinking, well, what is metaverse, which is it's sort of like talking about mobile in the early 2000s. It's also sort of like talking about the Internet in the early 90s. You know, remember when people used to say information superhighway? So, well, what did that mean? Yeah. And we are we are kind of using the information superhighway now, but not in any of the ways that people were talking about in like yeah. 1992. Um, it, 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 if you, Web3, if sorry. Sorry, go on. Go on, No, I was going to say Web3, um, this is actually, I mean, interestingly, it's kind of entirely separate and independent concept, um, as far as I understand it. So mm -hmm. the way I would think about Web3 is Web3 is the idea that you can run software on a blockchain. And so you can think of a blockchain the, say the Ethereum blockchain, as being sort of a very globally distributed virtual machine. Yeah. And just as the web is like a distributed publishing system. So Ethereum and other blockchains are sort of a globally distributed virtual machine that can run software. And at the moment, they run software incredibly slowly and badly. But then the internet was looked like a terrible publishing system in 1994. So it could get better. And if it were to get much better and much faster then you could maybe build Instagram on a blockchain. And if you built Instagram on a blockchain, then it would work or you know, it wouldn't be Instagram because the new thing is never the old thing on a new architecture. You could build a billion scale consumer application on this. And you do that, if you did that, it would work in really interesting different ways because all the users would in effect have equity and have a vote. And every individual like database join and table and API would be publicly exposed. And there would so there wouldn't be like one company that makes one client and decides what the payout ratio is. Mm. So if you're an Instagram, if you're an influencer on a blockchain social network, you would take money for an ad, and that money would be placed in an escrow system within the blockchain that you could see and everyone could see. And when you ran the ad, the payment would be mechanistically released to you based on the uh, metrics that were mechanistically disclosed by the system. So the whole thing would be running like a kind of a railway system, like everybody could see the tracks. Everyone could see how it worked. Mm. Um, now, that's a very kind of utopian, hand-wavy vision. And it's not something that's going to be possible for like five years mm. or longer, if ever. But that's why people say Web3, because it's like another way of building the web. It's like it's the next version of the internet. Right. So two, two big things that we've described here, Metaverse and Web3, potentially massively disruptive, but maybe not. If you're sitting in the C-suite of the big retailers, hospitality organizations, or any business really, what would you be advising the C-suite to do today to prepare just in case something like that comes and disrupts so that you can participate? So there's two answers to this. One of them is, um, what was your second life strategy? Um, mm. Like everyone spent a couple of million dollars on second life. 
Um, and the main purpose of that was to go to Cannes and win awards from other people who spent a million dollars on Second Life. Um, slightly less cynically, you know, what was your mobile strategy in like 2002, 2003, 2004? Did you think this was going to completely transform your business? No. Would you invest hundreds of millions in, of it? No. But should you? did anything that you built turn out to be what was going to matter? Also, probably no. Mm. But would you go back and say we shouldn't have done anything with it? Also, again, probably no. It's something to experiment with, learn about, poke away at, play with. You know, you should have a VR headset. You should have. You should have. You should have spent half an hour in an Oculus Quest and looked at it and thought, okay, this is really interesting. I'm not quite sure what it's for, but you should have had that experience. So at least you kind of understand what this is and what this might be. Mm-hmm. Understanding at the same time that you know, look, there's single-digit millions of people using this at the moment, at most. Apple might announce something this summer. On the other hand, we've been saying Apple might announce something this summer for about five years. So we'll see. If they do, well, remember when the iPhone launched? The iPhone launches in 2007. It takes until at least 2010 for anything to really happen. Same thing with tablets. So like, you don't need to rush in and like build up a whole team of hundreds of people, but you also need to be paying attention. Yeah, yeah, great advice. One final thing uh, I wanted to talk about, which was um, an emerging technology that could impact the loyalty space, uh, non, uh, NFTs. Um, and lots of different industries are sort of, seems to be sort of experimenting with it, certainly mm. retail, hospitality, also the sports sector, uh, of course, the art sector and so on. Um, mm. how, how, how do you look at NFTs? What are they? How do they work? How should we think about it? Well, so NFTs are sort of a microcosm of the, the Bitcoin conversation. Sort of Web3 is a, is a Bitcoin, or let me step back. Bitcoin is one part of, of blockchain. Um, Web3 is one application for blockchains. NFTs are another slightly different application for blockchains. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I want to kind of give the absolutely sort of basic description of this, um, there's a story, I think, in Paddington Bear, that Paddington Bear is given a £5 note, and he goes to the bank and pays it in. And a week later, he goes back to the bank and asks for his five pounds. And they give him a five pound note. And he says, he looks at the serial numbers. And he says, this this isn't my five pound note. This is someone else's five pound note. And that's what an NFT is. You're taking a token on a blockchain and deciding to treat this one as different. Now, what would that be? Well, it could be a certificate as simple as that. So it could be a certificate that says you own this. If To my earlier example, if you were to build Instagram on a blockchain, well, every post would in effect be an NFT. It would be different. Every post would be a token and would be different. And in principle, you could buy and sell them. Would you buy Kim Kardashian's first Instagram post? Well, it sounds dumb to me, but people buy Marilyn Monroe's shoes. People buy all kinds of stuff that has no intrinsic value, um, but has some sort of cultural value. Um, People have been doing this in the art world for 200 years. You know, why is it that... A Picasso print that's one of 100 is worth X, and a Picasso print that's one of 10,000 is not. It's not because there's some tangible value in the piece of paper and ink. It's because there's a signature somewhere. There's an entry in a ledger at an art dealer that tells you that one is one of 100. And so I don't have any kind of intellectual problem with the idea that the sort of self-expression and identity and cultural value that leads people to buy... People spend $10,000 on rare sneakers. People will buy an early edition of the first Sex Pistols album. People will buy a Picasso print or a Dali print or a Dura print 
for a lot of money. So people will buy something that has no tangible value. I don't have a problem with the idea that you can extend that to digital. And what NFTs do is give you like a, a verifiable, specific way of saying, no, this is unique. This is a unique thing. However, you can also say everything that actually happened last year was share ramping, dealing, hype and nonsense. And none of it and none of the stuff that people were actually were buying did have any of that intrinsic cultural value. This just was just people speculating in a speculative instrument, very often using paper gains from speculating in other crypto assets to speculate in NFTs. Very often the trades weren't real, that people were trading with themselves in order to pump the price. Um, so there's an awful, you can both think that everything that happened last year was nonsense and mm. also think that the idea of collectibles and rarity and artificial scarcity has very deep cultural roots and you ought in principle to be able to extend that to something in digital. Yeah, uh, and it's, you, could, you can, I think, easily make the jump to loyalty uh, and getting people to engage mm. in, in particular transactions. Um, again, what one that I think um, want to watch, perhaps rather than dive into. It is. I mean, one of the, so one of the one of the cases that, that people that come up often come up comes up is is to think about football. So the sort of theory mm. is you see this young footballer age seventeen, you buy their token, um, they get paid in tokens, which would hopefully that would like make that give you the whole thing kind of in, in a sealed system. As their salary goes up, as they get a transfer, you get a share of that based mm. on when you bought. Um, so you get in a sense it's a way and, and it all and again it's all sort of mechanistic and in the system so it's not sitting in a safe in some lawyer's office in Manchester um, mm. or Dallas it's all mechanistic it's all public you can see it in the system um, mm. whether you want to do that whether that would be a good idea whether that works with football well that's kind of a football question not a blockchain question yeah yeah um, one final one if I may just throw in just before we finish what's the one piece or area of technology that's really exciting you at the moment well, as I sort of said earlier, there is a sort of everyone's running around with their hair on fire um, moment around ChatGPT. Um, yeah. I mean, I sometimes say that, that the tech industry tends to suffer from Tourette's only instead of shouting swear words at random moments in conversations, it's bots or voice or generative machine learning or VR. And now it's definitely ChatGPT. Um, yeah. And I think the kind of, the, as I sort of spoke, alluded to in various different ways, we're all kind of trying to work out, well, what is this? What does this mean? What does that mean for search? What would that mean for creating software? Like how big, what are the kind of, how broad are the implications? What's the right level of abstraction to think about that? I think the other side of though is, you know, at a very different level of abstraction is um, what does it mean if you think of rent and advertising and marketing as interchangeable? You know, how do you build a brand if you don't need to do an MOQ for Walmart or buy and do a nationwide TV buy? And we're still sort of at the beginning of working out, well, what is that? How does that work? What kind of companies can you create with that? Fantastic. I mean, there's a great sort of observation. There's, a, there's, 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 there's an observation that the kind of car industry probably created far more millionaires outside the car industry in retail and real estate because everyone had a car than it created in the actual car industry. And I think that's sort of where tech is today. Great, great way to look at that. Well, thank you, Benedict, for joining us. Uh, fascinating conversation. I could I could um, go on for hours, actually, just asking questions from your blog. And I think if anybody's interested, uh, Benedict Evans, uh, you should look up the uh, weekly newsletter that comes out. It is full of everything that Benedict's talked about and a lot more. Thank you all for joining us today on today's episode of the Commerce Cast, exploring the future of commerce with industry expert Benedict Evans. 
If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to our podcast series and stay up to date on the latest trends and insight in the world of business and commerce. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of the Commerce Cast.